welcome to the Unfair Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Onfit podcast. My name is Lewis McClellan. I'm the editor of the Digital Monetary Institute. And today we're going to be discussing the application of blockchain technology to the bond market. I'm delighted to be joined by three of the people on the absolute cutting edge of this work. Uh, we have Bertrand de Mazier, uh, Director General for Finance of European Investment Bank, which has been one of the real pioneering institutions uh, in this space and, and certainly the most prolific issuer of blockchain bonds uh, thus far. Uh, great to have you, Bertrand. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. We also have uh, John O'Neill, Global Head of Digital Asset Strategy at HSBC, which has helped EIB develop one of its blockchain bond projects. Great to have you, John. Thanks for organizing this podcast. Great to be here. Our pleasure. Thank you. And uh, Matthew McDermott, uh, Global Head of Digital Assets at Goldman Sachs, which helped EIB issue another of its blockchain bonds. Thank you very much for having me. Terrific. All right. Well, let's start with you, Bertrand. I'm the EIB has been quite active in the in the blockchain bond space for for a while now. Can you tell us a little bit a little bit of the the background, the, the history of uh, your institution's involvement with the technology? Sure, with pleasure. I'll give you a quick summary of what we've done so far. The European Investment Bank, in fact, has has been working on blockchain funding since early 2019. We started first to look at what uh, was already going on, and so we did some some research first without even uh, showing uh, ourselves on the market. And uh, it it became clear to us that all the market of participant experiments already done in, let's say, 2019 or 20 were incomplete. And uh, what we what we set to do uh, was then to develop a solution that would closely resemble traditionally EIB print vanilla bonds. So we started to work on a series of projects in in stages, and actually we gave to these projects the name of Planet, so it's some some sort of a space journey that we started, but it's a space journey within the solar system, so it shows that uh, we we were definitely starting something quite new, but not totally, uh, totally, let's say, in the wide house space. In April 2021, we did our first project, a project of a Curie, that was a public Ethereum-based bond that was lead managed by Goldman Sachs and Santander and Société Générale. And Société Générale managed the platform interacting with the blockchain. It was the, the first joint lead managed bond on a public blockchain that was offered to uh, more than one investors, actually to, to, to a range of investors settling both security and cash on the blockchain. This bond was launched under the French legislation because at the time it was the most advanced legislation available in Europe. This uh, actually, it, uh, it, the, the French acronym uh, reads in English DEEP, which is uh, interesting in itself. It's Dispositif Electronic d'Enregistrement Partagé. It was a two-year bond with 100 million notional amounts and zero coupon instruments. And so it paved the way for the next project. And the second project was in November 2022, Project Divinus, with the same group of lead managers. But we wanted to to push the technology or the exploration of the technology further. So it was, again, a two-year bond, uh, again, a euro, 100 million euro fixed rate bond. But this time, it was no longer a zero coupon. We introduced a coupon payment feature. 
we executed the deal on the Luxembourg legislation this time to, to, uh, so, so to try and explore further the, the boundaries of what uh, EU legislation could offer. The execution platform was based in Germany and run by Goldman Sachs, was uh, responsible for the bond side, while the cash side was organized on a separate blockchain managed by Banque de France and Banque de Luxembourg. And additionally, the hedging swap probably presented for the first time of the blockchain. So uh, another steps with a cross-border uh, element and also uh, uh, a coupon, uh, a real coupon on the hedging, a representation of the hedging. And the most recent project was in February uh, this year, Project Mars, that was lead managed by HSBC, RBC, and BNP. And this was a bond denominated in uh, Sterling. And uh, what was new there is that it was the first ever blockchain-based floating rate node. So as you see, we've tried to, to pioneer projects with uh, each of them pushing a bit further the boundaries of what we could, uh, we could do with blockchain technology. Fantastic. Yeah, it's a really interesting uh, incremental approach, I guess. Uh, it's Indeed. just as simple as a blockchain bond, but uh, the structure is getting a little bit more involved every time. Matthew, uh, can I come to you now? Can you tell us a little bit more about Project Venus, um, you know, your involvement in it, what, what work was required, some of the challenges, that sort of thing? Yeah, I think Bertrand actually gave a really good kind of high-level overview of the actual transaction itself. Um, and I'll, there's probably a couple of other points I'll actually pluck out as well and mention. Um, I guess one of the exciting things for us at Goldman was it was the first time we actually had used our own digital asset platform that we developed to enable us to, you know, facilitate client aspirations in the digital asset space. And so for us, the work going into building out the platform and being able to deliver free IB, you know, was obviously kind of key. I think for us, the platform, you know, is multi-jurisdiction and I'll go on to another more recent transaction that we've executed on that. But but that was obviously one of the key considerations. And, and actually, as co-lead, it was actually a Goldman Sachs Bank Europe entity that was the co-lead rather than kind of Goldman Sachs International, which typically does a lot of this, you know, out of Europe or has historically. I would say there are probably two other things I'd just quickly kind of highlight with that transaction. One was the settlement cycle. You know, we talk, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk about, you know, some of the potential benefits of leveraging uh, distributed ledger technology. But the settlement cycle was T plus zero. And, you know, Bertrand probably can testify to this. Typically, EIB has a T plus five kind of settlement mm -hmm. cycle. And so that ability to just shorten that materially and actually the actual settlement cycle itself is actually within 60 seconds. And in a world where we're very focused on our use of key resources, be that liquidity, be that capital, it really does point to, you know, a future where you can just use that precision of the technology and just be fund fundamentally more efficient. The point about the two different, the cross-jurisdictional and, and the two different ledgers, I think, is a hugely important one, too. We actually settled DVP where the Bank de France, where we leveraged the Bank de France's payment rails. And so there was this hash time lock contract that allowed us to sell DVP on the Goldman Sachs platform, which, as I mentioned, is, is run by GSB, which is in Germany. And so that was actually another kind of key development from our side. And, and the third piece, as I mentioned, is on the swap side. Absolutely right. We actually were able to represent the derivative cash flow payments on chain using a common domain model. So starting to really leverage some of these standards that have been developed in the market. So, you know, I mean, it was just super exciting to work with, with all those involved. And, and obviously, 
thank the IB for you know really being at the forefront of this technology and, and really thinking forward how we can can innovate. The next transaction that we've actually executed on the platform was in February of this year, um, and that was working with HSBC and the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. And this was something, you know, that was, you know, again, showing just the, the kind of flexibility of this technology to work in different kind of jurisdictions using different underlying law. This time we used Hong Kong law. And this was actually rather than a digital native issuance to the blockchain, which is kind of what we did with the EIB transaction. This was actually a tokenization of an existing asset or an asset that was issued. Uh, this time it was a green debt issuance issued by HKMA, and we tokenized that, and we actually had the transaction settle on chain. So there was actually a cash token that was managed by uh, the CMU, which is part of the HKMA. So again, a couple of key features I'll pluck out there. One was a you know significant reduction in the settlement cycle. On this occasion, we used T plus one because that was the preference of the issuer, and this was the first sovereign basically tokenization and the first tokenization of green debt. So, you know, again, just really pointing forward to kind of the potential. And here there's a nice little feature because you do get a cross section between ESG um, and digital assets. And I'm sure we'll elaborate on that a little bit further. Yeah. But, you know, they're two key projects that we've been focused on. Um, much more to come, but, but I'll stop there for now. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned, you know, doing uh, T plus zero, uh, you know, pretty much immediate settlement for the EIB and, and not for HKMA. And I think that's a really interesting distinction because, uh, you know, people have been talking about ensuring instant settlement for a while. But uh, I, I guess what we're actually seeing is what people want is settlement on demand rather than necessarily instant. They want it to be when they want it, not as a consequence of, the, you know, the way the technology is built. I think that's I think that's, that's an excellent point, and I think people do get a little bit kind of trapped in this kind of atomic settlement, and and it is the precision with when you can settle that's the key thing. Um, so yeah, very good point. John, let me come to you now. So Bertrand mentioned uh, Project Mars and, and that being Sterling denominated. Um, I think uh, most of the other blockchain projects uh, have been you know working with the Bank de France and, and their Digital Euro. Um, what was it like uh, doing that for Sterling? And, and I guess, yeah, if there's any other particular features of that that you want to draw out, that'd be interesting as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we take just a step back from um, those individual transactions, if we think as an industry um, with um, issuers and EIB definitely leading in terms of tokenized issuance, but we think of banks coming to the market, ourselves at HSBC, Goldman Sachs with Matt and some other banks as well, more and more people are building platforms and getting interested in this space. And I think um, it's worth saying, um, and I think others in the call will, will, will hopefully endorse me with this, is when you start to think about building a digital asset platform, there is really a whole number of considerations that you would expect of any complex technolo technology, legal and regulatory project. But I would say principally for building a digital, digital assets platform, there's two considerations. The first consideration, once you have your issuer and you're partnered with an issuer, and obviously EIB um, for both of us, both of the banks on this call was, was an excellent partner, is you have to decide where you're going to put the platform. So you have to decide which choice of law and regulation you will use. And then you also have to decide how you're going to move the money. I think those are the two kind of fundamental conceptual questions you ask. And if I think back to 2021, when we were first on talking to the EIB, 
Um, I think you went out to a number of banks on the street. You'd already done that, that first transaction, which has been mentioned, the Mercury transaction. Mm-hmm. And um, our approach, and what we always said to the IB, is we wanted to build what we regard as an industrial platform. So be partnered with a, um, a, a benchmark issuer like the EIB, but build a platform which can support a number of other issuances going forward. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about uh, what ourselves and, and, and Goldman Sachs have done in Hong Kong in a second. But for the platform that we were building in Europe, um, really the first order of business was decide where to put it. And um, we liked a number of locations in terms of uh, blockchain regulation legislation. Um, Germany is certainly a very good location. France is a good location. But the one we chose and the one we like best is Luxembourg. And the reason we went um, to Luxembourg is, first of all, that's an important center for HSBC. But very particularly was because for a number of years, there's been dedicated dematerialized securities acts in Luxembourg. And most recently in 2021, there was a dedicated blockchain act. And within that act, there is a concept called a central account keeper, um, often referred to as a CAK. And what that allows you to do is operate a platform which is in many ways like a CSD, although it isn't technically a CSD. And you can issue custody and make available for trading digital bonds on that platform. And as part of building the platform, which we call Orion at HSBC, we're the first bank to be awarded that to be a CAK. So that took a lot of careful work, very thorough work with the central bank, the securities regulator, Ministry of Finance, lots of different entities in Luxembourg, with obviously very close involvement um, from the EIB in terms of the launch bond. And we think that's a really excellent foundation. And what it means in a nutshell is when you transfer a token, if you have that regulatory status, when you receive the token, you actually own the bond, which is represented by the token. That's a very important point. So you're aligning technology transfer and legal asset transfer. And we think that really is what you need to do in terms of creating, Matt already made the distinction between digital bonds and tokenized copies of bonds. Both are very legitimate approaches, but we really wanted to achieve the first. And that's what we've done with Orion in Luxembourg. The other point is, is how you move the money. And Lewis, um, your question on that is very pertinent because um, as we've already said, um, Bertrand, the, uh, the, 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 the transaction we've done, the Mars transaction, was your first non-euro transaction. Mm-hmm. Now, for, um, uh, for the euro transactions, they've used a, an approach which is often referred to as a simulated CBDC, and the Bank de France yep. have very much led a set of experiments on that. We were actually at HSBC, we were involved because we, we, we continue to um, have a strong presence in Paris and had that for a number of years. With the four large French banks, we helped originally create that concept uh, with Euroclear as well and the Bank de France and, and other agencies of the French government. And what that concept uh, effectively does is create a central bank money settlement token, which settles into target two. So it's a way of settling central bank money. And that's a fantastic approach. And Clearly, colleagues of Goldman Sachs have, have used, used that approach um, for um, settling central bank money if it's, if it's available. Um, but when we look at a sterling transaction, we considered that. Obviously, that's a different currency. And the approach that we've used on Orion is to tokenize commercial bank money. So obviously, as HSBC, we're creating commercial bank money all the time in, in various currencies, including sterling, euro, and others. And by adding um, that facility on Orion and creating that facility, um, so that we can move commercial bank money tokens, 
we can use that to support the transfer of digital assets. What we've also done is made the platform CBDC ready, we always like to say. So the payment rails on Orion is if and when CBDCs get live, when they're real things, been used for real wholesale market transactions, we'll use those for central bank money settlement on Orion. And then also, um, Matt already mentioned the transaction that we've done together in Hong Kong. We think that's really exciting. Obviously, no location is more important for HSBC than Hong Kong. And um, that first um, uh, green bond, ESG bond, which is called Evergreen, Project Evergreen, it's called, um, that launch, which launched in February. Um, we think that's really exciting, particularly how we have integrated together into CMU, which was mentioned already, which is the, um, is the settlement system of the HKMA, Hong Kong Monetary Authority. And we think that offers a real possibility for um, additional types of tokenized bonds with ESG characteristics. And as part of that program, we expect to see uh, more happening soon. So um, I think both those projects, all the projects we're talking about with EIB, but also in Hong Kong, they really speak of exciting possibilities globally for this subject. So there's a lot happening, a lot more is going to happen soon. Yeah, absolutely. The HKMA, have, along with EIB, been been very active in this space. I know they've got the BIS uh, Project Genesis, uh, which I believe 2.0 is finished now. So they're, they've had a lot That's of... That's right. Yeah. Yeah, we were actually involved in that, and uh, we presented at COP27, actually, the findings. Um, mm. But just one other point I'd actually like to make on, on actually the, the EIB second euro issuance. The actual authoritative source of truth was actually the registrar, which was the blockchain itself. So similar to what John was talking about, you know, kind of in terms of when you buy and sell and the actual movement moves to the buyer or the seller moves from the, the seller to the buyer, the actual the authoritative source was the blockchain. We did not need to be a registered CSD. And I think that's a very important distinction on the forward. And we actually had our platform um, governed under German law, even though the actual note issuance itself was governed under Lux law. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think what it gets really exciting right now is when rather than creating copies of securities, you're actually creating a security which is in blockchain form, in tokenized form. And we always describe that as living natively on the chain. So for our platform, that's the private chain we've created. That's where it gets um, you really fulfilling the potential of the technology in the broadest sense, not just just tech, but also legal and the entire construct. 100 percent. Yeah, exactly. Bertrand, can I bring you in uh, here? And um, obviously, you've uh, been been involved in in both of these projects, you know, Venus and Mars. You know, working with Orion, keeping to the uh, astronomical uh, yeah. main conventions. Um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, some of the uh, the complexities that Matthew and, and John are bringing up. I'm wondering how much are of, of those factors are relevant for you guys or is that kind of complexity that's abstracted away from you guys so whether you guys are whether it's settled in tokenized commercial bank money or uh or you know a simulated cbdc can you talk about how you guys think about that and i guess you're just kind of experimenting with both but yeah what was your what was your thoughts on that yeah i, I would like to insist in fact on the on the on the silver experimental uh dimension although is these uh, transactions on our part so the the idea indeed is to uh to be sure to uh to try and cover to the uh, to, to 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 the um, to cover all the issues and also the possibilities that that this uh, technology uh, uh, entails so for for example we indeed uh, worked on uh, let's say uh, 
representation of Central Bank Monet or CBDC, and we worked also on, uh, in, 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 with HSBC on, on, on actually um, commercial bank digital currency. It doesn't mean that whether we have a view on what will, will prevail in the, in the future, but, but, but we want it to be able to, to, I would say, uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to test the two approaches. Certainly, uh, if perhaps I will, I will, uh, change a bit the topic of the, the perspective. Uh, certainly for the, for, for this kind of transactions and for the future, there remain some, some challenges undoubtedly, and in particular regulatory challenges. And the fact is that still at the moment, the, the regulation of blockchain, let's say, uh, issuance is, is a work in progress. And uh, perhaps a concern I could have um, it's, is, is uh, that uh, we uh, go into directions where different registrations develop regulatory frameworks and requirements that are so so different that actually they they push towards fragmentation of 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 the market. And, 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 and actually this issue of a, a possible issue of fragmentation is also something that may, that may, um, be also, I would say, either helped or made complicated by the way the CBDCs of the commercial, uh, of the commercial, uh, currencies, uh, are themselves uh, developed. So, uh, undoubtedly, we're quite happy to continue. We've been extremely happy with these transactions. Actually, there are still two other planets in our solar system that we are, we are trying to, we are hoping to, to, to see in the sky, uh, in the next few months for, in other currencies, actually. But, but, um, I, I have to say that, uh, we, we have uh, still all together to work with uh, a certain lack of uh, regulatory clarity. It's also fair to say that uh, smart contracts are an integral part of the blockchain-based bonds, and that uh, so documentation, the documentation of bonds themselves, is something that doesn't come without some challenges, as you have to ensure that the legal language in smart contracts is uh, enforceable and unambiguous. So I would say that perhaps I'm sounding a bit negative, and it's not at all what I want to impart. We're quite, we are very happy to work on this, but definitely there are still a series of of questions and challenges to to meet and to to address. Yeah. And in the end, the success of a blockchain-based bond depends on the acceptance by investors and issuers. So we have actually to convince traditional investors and insurers to adopt the new technology. This can be difficult, and so we have to uh, we have to be sure to to provide an answer to our concerns. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, yeah, it's important to to acknowledge that there are uh, definitely still some challenges there. And I think uh, you mentioned fragmentation there. That's something that uh, I think we'll we'll come on to uh, in a moment. But. Um, mm-hmm. But Matthew, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, any of the struggles that that you still see as you know that, that still have to be over, overcome? You know, Bertrand mentioned uh, regulatory ones that might be a, a good place to start, and then we can come on to more technical challenges as well. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I think Bertrand obviously touched on a few of them, but I, I wouldn't necessarily use the term regulatory struggle. I think regulatory clarity is is the key point, and I think. You know, I just take you back to kind of when I came into this business, 2020, there wasn't a regulation to talk to. There was no real guidance at all across the market. And so, you know, people that were doing transactions in this space, you know, really had no guiding principles at all. 
I mean, if you think yesterday the European Union basically approved MICA for it to come into play, you know, 2024, we've got the EU pilot. Um, but I think Bertrand's point is is a very salient one. I mean, if I look at some of the countries that are at the forefront of this, we've obviously talked about Luxembourg, which I completely agree, Germany, France, all of them have slightly nuanced and different uh, securities law. And so, you know, and then you look at the UK system, that's kind of case law. US is the same, and there's obviously a myriad of different regulators there. So, so I think regulatory clarity, you know, is going to be key to really kind of propel this market forward. I think the good thing is, and, and some of this is, is actually a byproduct of what actually happened in the cryptocurrency market, that regulators really did need to move quickly. And what you actually have seen is a delineation in terms of them looking at the cryptocurrency markets and then the actual application of the underlying technology, recognizing that the latter can actually have a very profound impact on the market. Um, in many different ways, and we'll, I, we'll go and talk about some of the benefits later. But I think, to me, that's hugely helpful, and I think we're starting to see now, you know, kind of, I wouldn't say an acceleration, but definitely a lot more kind of regulatory clarity. There's healthy competition between do, different jurisdictions, um, and so that, that that's a, a good positive. Um, you look at Switzerland, you look at Singapore, you look at Hong Kong. Um, you know, these are countries that are really trying to move forward and be at the forefront of this, as well as the others mentioned. Mm. Um, so I think regulatory clarity is definitely one. I think the second one, and I think this is a key fundamental point, and I think this kind of feeds perhaps from the first one as well, secondary liquidity. Better remember, you've got to kind of entice the investors. And, and hopefully John will concur with this, that there is absolutely no lack of interest from investors, and particularly the buy side, the big kind of investment managers and the like. Now, the key thing for many of them is they need to see secondary liquidity. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, this ability to actually kind of market make using trading venues just isn't permissible under, you know, a variety of different jurisdictional regulations. And so that's something, you know, is a big focus of ours um, to really kind of this year try and move forward and actually start to have that ability to market make in a way that you do in the normal market marketplace, because then that gives people comfort and confidence that there's liquidity in these instruments. And let us not forget, I mean, EIB issue, what, 50, 60, 70 billion in any given year, they're AAA rated. You know, this is a rock solid credit, but people still need to see liquidity, you know, for their own internal purposes. So I think that that's a, that's a key thing. Interoperability is another, you know, John referenced it. There's a lot of different platforms that have been developed. Talked about SockGen Forge, who we used in the inaugural EIB transaction. You know, John and myself both have platforms, albeit using the same technology. And so just making sure that there is that interoperability, I think, is also key as well, because otherwise you're just defeating the whole object of, of using the underlying technology if you just can't seamlessly kind of transcend between these different platforms. And, and that has been, you know, addressed and using the example of that second euro denominated EIB transaction where we used the Bank de France's payment rail for its wholesale CBDC, hash time lock that contract onto our own platform. That just showed the interoperability is fine. And we've actually done that with some other platforms like HQLX, for example. Um, but it's a very salient point. And probably the last thing I'll mention is integration. And so, you know, it's great using all this new fancy technology, but one of the key things is making sure that you can actually kind of seamlessly integrate it into your firm's books and records. Um, and so one of the things that we've been exceptionally focused on since day one is actually having that connectivity between the DLT and then, you know, as I said, our books and records. And even that inaugural transaction we did with the IB in 2021 
we were able to basically have that transaction fee down to our books and records. So there's some of the kind of, you know, using your parlance, the struggles that we see, but but I kind of feel very hopeful that, you know, there is good progress on those, but they're definitely things that, you know, to, to kind of cause pause for thought. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I think uh, for a couple of those, maybe less the integration side, but the, the interoperability side and, um, you know, getting getting a kind of critical mass of market participants behind one system. These are things that it's very difficult to achieve uh, unilaterally. You know, I mean, you guys developing your own platforms and so on, you can work sort of bilaterally to make sure those are interoperable, etc. But um you know, I guess it's it's going to be an interesting challenge to make sure that there is one standard that, that everyone kind of gets behind. Um, John, I wondered if you could uh, uh, talk to, to that a little bit. Uh, you know, how do we get from a situation where people are launching their own platforms to, to something that, um, you know, we, we don't have to deal with interoperability and uh, and fragmentation concerns? I think the, the way that will be addressed is, is, is incrementally. Um, it's worth saying that I think all of us in this call are very excited about these transactions and, and the platforms that we've built. But let's let's not not um, forget that what we are talking about is two banks in this call. Um, we've both uh, cooperated on the particular transaction we mentioned in Hong Kong, and we've both done one transaction uh, with EIB. And there's a third bank which we've mentioned um, who's also done a transaction with EIB. That's a fairly small number of transactions, right? There's um, many many bond transactions happen every day, and so. The amount of action in the tokenized market so far is just just a tiny portion of, of obviously the potential that we think can come forth. I think um, most of your question is, is in order to have more liquid markets, and I endorse everything that, 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 that Matt and Bertrand have said, said on these topics, is what we need to do is have a market structure, um, a liquidity profile, which is very similar to existing mm. uh, fixed income markets in this case. Let, let, let some people like to call those analog markets, but uh, I think as creating digital markets, we're probably not developed enough yet to kind of claim to be um, uh, call all of the markets analog. But uh, what we, we need to do is, is create those, those liquidity profiles, those market facilities. Repo was mentioned. That's really important. You need to be able to do all these, all the things um, in these markets that you can do in, in, in more conventional markets. But what, what I don't think you need to do to achieve that, Lewis, is have a monolithic standard. Rather, we're all grappling with the same challenges. Um, Bertrand and, and Matt both mentioned um, different regulatory regimes. Is If we think of that as one of the, the two principal challenges I laid out at the beginning, is talked about Luxembourg, France, and, and Germany, but there's more regimes who are very rapidly coming to the fore in terms of creating new legislation, new regulatory constructs. Um, and Hong Kong is one example we talked about. There's a lot happening there. There's a lot of impetus to, to do more and more. And we could mention other locations. Um, we particularly like the work of international bodies like the BAS, FSB, and um, others who have coordinated those uh, that, that approach. But they're not doing it in a prescriptive or top-down manner there. Uh, learning lessons between different jurisdictions, um, coming up with guiding principles but around risk and safety, and we're seeing um, uh, different jurisdictions come to the fore. But then I think the other thing as well as the jurisdictions is let's talk about the instruments. So um, we talked a bit about the challenges of different forms of digital money, and I like Bertrand's comment um, 
that you're not wedded to any particular form. Bertrand, is how I interpreted um, your your approach there. So you can use CBDC-like settlement or you can mm. use commercial bank money. The way we see that at HSBC <coughs> is there's the state-backed money, um, and obviously CBDCs in different forms as they're implemented are different uh, digital versions of M0. There's commercial bank money, which is, is existing M1, um, and safe and reliable. There's also crypto and stable coins. Now, deliberately, we're not using crypto and stable coins on um, on Orion. We, we don't think those are at all ready for prime time, and we're not directly transacting those at HSBC. But we spend a lot of time engaging with the regulatory conversation because if you take a few steps back and you think big picture, is all those um, crypto stable coins are nascent forms of private money. And we think um, private money is something we're very comfortable with. Commercial bank money is private money. Um, but we don't think those coins and those tokens are yet ready for prime time because they're not regulated in the right way. So many of those conversations, FSB, Basel Committee and others, are really important to get that into shape. So um, those markets have the potential to be used more widely for safe transactions. We think that's really important. I think, um, Lewis, if you, um, as we develop across the regulation across products and jurisdictions and uh, different institutions come forth and launch platforms as, as, as we have already in this call, what we're going to start to see is a developing market ecosystem. And I think that's what Matt is thinking of when, particularly Matt, right, when you think of secondary liquidity. And you, what you will see is not um, common technical standards, but you'll see global markets um, being rolled out. You'll see different approaches to different currencies because right now, today, Obviously, we're a very big FX bank and do a lot of um, payment transactions globally. We very much support the development of global markets, but it doesn't mean that we expect every currency to behave the same. So some currencies are non-deliverable, other currencies are freely transferable. And it's all those different elements will find their way into this market. The key is to increase all the, the, the different forms of connectivity and the market opportunities. Uh, and Lewis, you were asking about you know, particular challenges. I think one... Um, particular challenge that we saw for um, building out Orion, and it was a lot of work to overcome this, but, but what we think it may uh, pay good dividends in the future, is we wanted to create a platform which legally is on a private chain, it's on a secure network, it's behind our firewalls, but also we have a public side access, so we have an Ethereum side. Um, and um, technically creating that connectivity wasn't so hard. That's fairly easy to do. What was very challenging is doing it in a safe, controlled manner where everyone on that public side is KYC'd. And I think one of the big questions, and this won't be solved today and it won't be solved in 2023 for this market, is will permissioned or permissionless chains prevail? We think both have a really legitimate role, but both have to be used in a safe manner. And that's another thing, a question that will be played out as the market ecosystem develops. So I think that's also one to watch. Yeah, I'm really interested in that question because, you know, when I first started, uh, you know, talking to people about, about this technology in probably 2017, 2018, when I spoke to uh, banks about public and private blockchains, you know, permission and permissionless blockchains, the perception then was that uh, it would only ever be permission blockchains that would be considered secure enough. Uh, but over the past few years, I think people have really... Um, you know, warmed up to the, the concept of public blockchains and the type of security that they can provide. And uh, I guess people just have a, a better perception of, of what's possible there. Um, Bertrand, do you have a perspective on that? Obviously, you've I think you've worked with both now. So do you have mm -hmm. a 
on um uh on where this is going to go or are you kind of happy with both uh, you mean private versus uh, public actually uh actually uh I, i'm i'm a bit of a special issuer because i'm also an issuer that belongs to the the public sphere to to, to. <laughs> and and there maybe i i i will mention two uh, two or three things uh first of all there are, there are some also some things that we have to convince our and decision makers of uh, uh regarding uh, blockchain bonds one is that you know for some of them uh there's a risk perception that can be strong because uh they may incorrectly perceive this kind of a uh, technology as uh linked to the perceived volatility of cryptocurrencies so uh, we we have also to we had had to educate our own decision our governance uh, in making a difference between between what we do and what are cryptocurrencies. I'm sorry, it's, it looks very basic, but it's also important to have that in in mind. We have also in mind the so, so we, we 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 made some some remarks on on uh, whether actually uh, this kind of issuance was uh, climate friendly, and it's something that's been slightly, I would say, slightly uh, put at ease with the evolution of the let's say, of the platform themselves. But nevertheless, I have to say that we still have probably to, to do some more proof of concept, and we are working on one of the planets to come, actually, would be some sort of a proof of concepts that uh, this is also something that is that is compatible with, 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 uh, with uh, energy transition. And, and finally, public versus private. I must say, again, we, we're fairly agnostic. What is very important for us is uh, the, to participate to 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 uh, prove of concept that, that that show that it can work as as a public institution. Obviously, obviously, when you, you when you go to a governance of a public institution and you speak with them of private uh, of, of of private blockchain issue, the, 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 you you are adding one one question to explain to your governance that it is not at all impossible, and indeed we can. We can, we can see in private blockchain the, the possibility of a, let's say, a permission network that, uh, that uh, provides some sort of additional, uh, of additional uh, security as to whom you are transacting with. Uh, on the other hand, it may raise the issue of uh, the scalability and uh, this issue of interoperability and fermentation that we mentioned. So, also there, but all in all, what is very important for you to, to, um, to, to, to uh, and, and what is very important for, for us to work upon is to uh, deliver uh, at the moment, and we're still at this stage to deliver very good proof of concept, very successful implementation of, of, of pilot cases, pilot projects, including including pilot that shows that uh, secondary market activity can be supported also with this ecology. Yeah, I think it's um, uh, well, possibly John and Matthew have been in this space for for long enough that you don't have to have those conversations uh, so often, but it's uh, it's very common uh, outside of the digital assets team that people. We'll still assume that cryptocurrency and, uh, and blockchain are exactly the same and, yeah. and the proof of work, uh, proof of work consensus mechanisms. Everyone's heard, you know, talking about the Bitcoin's carbon footprint have been the size of Argentina or whatever. Uh, but yeah, I think people are, there is still some education to be done in uh, absolutely ensuring people, uh, make the appropriate distinction. But I actually don't, 
I don't think it's helped by the fact that people refer to it as crypto assets. You know, that in itself, I think, immediately kind of lends itself to people immediately thinking about cryptocurrencies and, and why digital assets is a much better, yeah. you know, term for probably a cross-section of, of, of different parts of the, of the market. Uh, just coming on, I'll just quickly follow on from a couple of points. I mean, from my perspective, um, obviously, as a U.S. bank, we are, you know, kind of um, guided by the U.S. regulators. And, and it's very clear that... I think the current position has been a number of, of, of statements that have been made where, you know, for the most part, they, they feel the safety and soundness and permissionless blockchains isn't quite at a place where, you know, you can see huge swathes of the financial markets transacting. And so just kind of p- picking on a couple of points that Bertrand made, I, I do think the security, the privacy that you get with a private blockchain does allow, you know, particularly on the investor side as well, because this is something we hear quite regularly from them the confidence to kind of experiment and actually become more actively involved. And I still think you can extract the benefits and see the the potential value of using the underlying technology. And as you start to build out these private blockchains with others kind of hosting their own nodes, you can actually get a good element of decentralization. Now, uh, I also acknowledge that, you know, you think about democratization, particularly kind of non-institutional wealth management, really the, the public blockchain does offer you that to do that in a very expeditious and, and scaled way. But I do think we're a, we're a little way off. I think for institutional and kind of that kind of wealth management client base, I think we're going to see a lot of experimentation, well, a lot of activity on private kind of blockchains, particularly led by the U.S. banks anyway. I mean, others have more flexibilities, we've seen with SolkChain. Um, but I'm excited about what we can do there. And once you can actually build in that decentralization, build out the marketplace as the secondary liquidity, that is a good foretaste and it's a good way for regulators you know, and others to, to get a good insight as to how powerful the technology can be, get comfortable and then see what the next iteration is. Also, the cost on, on public blockchains, and it's not clear to me point in time as well, you know, which underlying layer ones are going to ultimately prevail. The cost is still quite prohibitive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And but, sorry, so, uh, just just some thoughts on that. Having having kind of spent some time building all of that out, is um, in building out um, public connectivity and going on to in our case Ethereum mainnet. Um, the the way we approached that wasn't um, by any means that we think there's a, or a clamour from the market to transact um, uh, in large volumes on public chains. Not at all, and that's why. The legal side of our platform, the, the principal regulatory construct is behind a private chain, so it's behind a secure firewall. It's, it's you, you come in via custody relationships, so that's a very easy way to onboard on the platform. And actually, one thing we haven't talked about so far, which I think is a really cardinal point, is there's no good um, HSBC, Goldman Sachs, some of the other banks building fantastic digital asset platforms and going to customers on the buy side in particular and saying hey, guys, would you like to collect this platform? And it's going to take you six months' worth of development work. I'm pretty sure all our buy-side um, customers would say, well, that's that's fantastic, nice platform, but I've got other things to do. Um, in, instead, the way we've solved that, and I think it's a really important point with Orion, is we come in via custody, our customers come in via custody relationships. That means they're, um, they're KYC'd onto the platform. That's that private side, that safe, secure, all the themes we've been talking about. In terms of the public side, though, we do think it's got potential for the future. We very closely watch the global regulations. And as Matt has said, there might be some difference between different jurisdictions at the moment. But I think if there's really strong demand for widespread use of the public side, the regulation and all the key locations will evolve. 
I think the comfort point that Bertrand made is, is really important. And we're having those conversations all the time. People do think this is a bit like crypto. It isn't. And I think Matt's point about terminology is, 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 is bang on. Um, using the terminology of crypto assets just sometimes confuses people, even though it is a legitimate term. But in terms of public and private chains, you know, one analogy I think is pretty useful is cloud, right? So five years ago, seven years ago, those kind of timeframes, there was people saying that, okay, cloud is interesting, um, but you need to do it in a private manner because if you use public cloud, you can't put secure data in it. And we can see with the big cloud providers, which are, you know, um, multi-billion dollar businesses now in their own right, attached to large tech firms, have really solved that problem in a safe, secure manner, and we're all using public clouds, all being partitioned manners. So it might be, and I make no predictions, it might be that public um, uh, public blockchains can be used in the same way, but we just think the story's got a long way to run, and we tend to distrust anyone who's too ideological about this. We, we don't think it's the case that you can say private will win forever, and we don't think it's the case that inevitably things will move to public probably it'll be a hybrid approach and that's why we're keeping our options open and seeing how things develop. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with that, by the way. And, and I think the way that we architected our platform is to give ultimately that flexibility between where you ultimately get settlement finality, be it on a private or a public. But I think as John says, it's probably got some way to run in terms of real yeah. sizable use cases on a public blockchain. Yeah, I think the cloud analogy is a very good one and uh, gives me an opportunity to plug uh, OnFIF's upcoming report on uh, cloud services for central banking, um, where, yeah, as you say, it's something that um, people originally were not comfortable with the security standards of a public blockchain, but the consent of public cloud, rather, but the consensus is that uh, it is at least as secure, probably more so than uh, than the alternative. Um, although, yeah, still still challenges for, for implementation. Um, I think uh, I just on, in that vein, maybe you could mention uh, Subnendu Mahanti from the Singapore, uh, the Singapore Monetary Authority. They, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, that's what they call themselves. <laughs> he mentioned uh, one of our events last year that um, the there was kind of too much emphasis on private cloud and he felt that you know pushing uh pushing to i keep saying cloud sorry i'm just going to say that again and the other thing i think to mention in that context we had a uh, submenu mahanti uh, from the monetary authority of singapore at one of our events talking about uh the fact that although private cloud private uh blockchains might be convenient and and easy to to integrate uh for financial services uh, his his kind of pitch is that eventually people will will move towards uh, the public standards. Um, I think at this point we're we're running short on time, but I think uh, if I give all three of you a chance to talk, we've talked a lot about about the challenges. So if you if I give all three of you a chance to uh, just tell me a little bit about what you are most excited about in terms of the benefits that uh, that this technology might deliver, I think that would be a good way to wind up. Um, Bertrand, would you care to start? Uh, yeah, yeah, with pleasure. Actually, it's an excellent point because, uh, nevertheless, we're quite happy to continue to, to work on this because we think that uh, there are several potential benefits to, for capital market transactions. So, uh, so, so the difficulties or the challenges should not make us forget that. Uh, first of all, and actually our experience with D plus zero, uh, at least for, for Venus, shows that uh, 
it's a, it has a potential of being a, a, a source of increased efficiency to 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 actually uh, blockchain based systems can uh, can all cluster can be more efficient can allow more efficient settlement of trades uh, can uh, significantly automate the post trade process so i think uh, everybody can gain from that uh, I think also even from the regulator that's important and for a public institution like mine is important. It's uh, it's uh, it's also a promise for enhanced transparency. Uh, I think that blockchain-based systems can offer uh, um, a very good way to to help reduce fraud, increase trust between counterparts. Uh, it will make uh, our life easier and the life of regulators easier to monitor and enforce compliance. Basically, and, and, and of course, depending on the way we can we can we can provide the right answer to cyber risk. Uh, blockchain technology, in fact, should provide uh, improved security uh, with uh, because it is basically uh, the provision of a secure and tamper-proof uh, record of of, of transactions. Um, there are certainly a lot of possibilities of lower costs, but I will be uh, a bit, a bit, uh, I would say, uh, a bit elusive on that. Uh, and I think that again, if we address properly all the challenges, it could simplify cross-border transactions, and it could also provide uh, actually a boost to to liquidity, because uh, blockchain-based systems can actually uh, facilitate the trading of assets that are currently not very liquid by enabling uh, fractional ownership and making it easier to buy and sell these assets. Yeah. So so overall I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, potential there. Yeah, absolutely. And we look forward to I suppose if I remember my astronomy Jupiter might be the next one from you guys. Is that a spoiler? Uh we can wait and see. Um John, any any thoughts from you on the the benefits that you're most excited about? Completely endorse everything Petron said, um, and, and what we said earlier in the conversation. Um, the, the way I tend to think about the benefits is, is kind of two buckets of benefits. So first of all, there's the short-term benefits, which we've achieved from the platforms that we're talking about in this conversation. And I think there's a faster settlement cycles there. As you mentioned, smart contracts, using them to trigger coupons. That's one thing we've done. Um, better, uh, lower cost of processing, I would say, more security. Those are all really good things and they're nice benefits. But I don't think those are so exciting and they're not going to transform markets. I think that it's the latter stage and Bertrand's touched on some of this already where it gets really exciting because I always keep in mind that the percentage of bonds that are in digital form is probably 0.001%, right? It's, it's, it's absolutely trivial. There'll be a moment, and we could speculate on the time frame, where it'll be 0.1%, then it'll be 1%, then it'll be 10%. And I think as it gets more substantial, uh, these faster settlement times um, in particular, and also fractionalization Bertrand mentioned, is you, you'll see a few things happen. First of all, you'll see assets which aren't really in tradable market environments coming into market environments. That's really exciting, right? So you'll, you'll see um, the potential for um, secondary market trade and liquidity in assets which very infrequently trade at the moment. I think entirely new asset class could be developed from that. But even in all the existing markets that we, we, we're already concentrating on, um, I think it's worth remembering that a lot of the ways markets work or market structure practices, some of them are dependent upon delivery uh, settlement cycles, lack of liquidity, and you can see really profound market structure change. So I think existing liquid markets 
um, really material market structure change beyond the process in benefits and entirely new products coming into liquid market environments. That's really where this gets exciting, and that's the reason you want to build a platform early and participate in this market early, I think issue early, and then also be an investor in these bonds. Just get used to these markets um, in lieu of that real potential, I would say. Yeah, I think uh, there's there's clearly a lot of uh, early legwork involved to to get to get uh, into these things early. But um, as you say, once the benefits start coming through, it will be good to have done that in advance. Uh, Matthew, some some final thoughts from you, perhaps? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, a lot has been touched on by the other two. Um, I mean, I guess you know, kind of just trying to differentiate a little bit. I mean, I think. As we think about, you know, a core kind of thematic at Goldman, one is digitizing kind of the whole life cycle of a transaction. So actually, as you see kind of the whole life cycle, seeing where you actually can use this underlying technology to kind of enhance the speed and the efficiencies that John and Bertrand kind of alluded to. And I think one of the key elements there is risk reduction, that ability to reduce settlement operational risks through kind of settlement finality. And then just going back to that point about precision in terms of your use of liquidity and therefore just being a the reduction in liquidity risk that kind of manifests itself in the vagaries of these markets, particularly at scale, and then the just more proficient use of, of key resources. Um, in the context of liquidity, I completely agree. And I think for me, obviously there's been this initial focus on vanilla debt issuances. Um, last year, there were 15 tokenizations, I believe. Um, and I've been told that there's, from a number of different kind of publications, there's going to be in excess of 75 this year. So I think that immediately points to kind of a dramatic growth. And I think through the regulatory clarity, through the potential of a scalable kind of digital kind of money over the next kind of 12, 18 months, and the, um, this potential for secondary trading, I think you do start to see other asset classes kind of weave into view where the actual value proposition probably is a little bit greater because they're a liquid and you can create greater transparency and through fractionalization just open up the markets. So I think that, you know, again, points that have been touched on, but I think are really key. And then the last one I'll make, and I think this is kind of key, is the enhanced functionality. So by being able to use smart contracts, you can actually, for example, link coupon payments to someone's performance under their, you know, their carbon targets, their carbon reduction targets. And that ability to do that, again, excites me because it's the cross-section between ESG and digital assets. But you do it because you can actually use this technology and you can do it in an admin and operationally efficient way. And to me, that's really how this will really move kind of the, the kind of the markets forward in a very positive way. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think um, the, the Project Genesis we we alluded to earlier, the BIS uh, Innovation Hub Project with HKMA, I think with their um, mitigation outcomes. There's one of the stats I was going to give you actually that um, that that actually is interesting. We stumbled upon this working with the UK finance uh, team. Um, basically, the EU did some analysis through one of their publications, and they actually see through um, progress across kind of crypto assets and digital financing, uh, digital finance rather a incremental GDP benefit of 33 billion. Now, you know, this is not going to happen next year, but that's pursuant to a large amount of analysis and they actually break that down. Mm. But I mean, just as a headline figure, I mean, that's exceptionally powerful. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Well, I think we should wind things up there. Uh, there's certainly a great deal more to discuss uh, and I hope we'll be able to have you guys back on to, to break down some more of it in the future. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you all. Have a nice weekend, everyone.
Uh, we'll leave it there. So I just want to say thanks again to uh, John O'Neill from HSBC, Matthew McDermott from Goldman Sachs, and Bertrand Demazier from EIB. It's a really fascinating topic, a huge amount more to discuss in this area, and we'll be covering it in, in great detail uh, later in the year in our digital assets report. Um, I'd like to remind the listeners we've got the Digital Monetary Institute uh, Symposium, uh, which is coming up May 10th and 11th. So do check that out. Uh, lots of really interesting discussions going on there. Some of the themes that we've discussed today uh, will be coming up then as well. Thank you again for listening. Uh, don't forget to follow us. We're available on Spotify and Podbean and on demand on the OnFit website. You can follow us on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter as well. Uh, and uh, don't forget to check back on the website for commentaries, news, and uh, details about the upcoming events. Thank you for listening to the OnFifth podcast.